Thanks for coming back to the Show Me Institute podcast, Michael. I think this might be our third one that we've done yes, here. Yes, it's, it's uh, good to be back. So glad to talk to you. And um, I should say you're a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and also a fellow Hoover fellow at Stanford, which sounds like a pretty good gig. Um, and you have a new piece, or I, I saw a letter to the editor that you had in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, uh, this recently, not yesterday, that I wanted to talk to you about a little bit because you know, we just had these elections in November. And I think that, uh, you know, you, a lot of the work you do is around teachers unions and school board elections. That's what we're going to talk about today. But I think it's really interesting to me that there are people within the public education establishment that uh, would have you believe that there's no such thing as politics in public education. Public education is insulated from this idea of politics and kids aren't widgets. And like they pull out some of these you know, like idealistic phrases sometimes to say that we don't have anything to do with politics. But in fact, public education is very political, right? I mean, it's it's absolutely political. I think what people are getting at with that claim is that partisan politics doesn't play a big role. But we've seen that change. I mean, that's a big change. Like we want to talk about big changes, the degree to which partisanship has potentially um, influence the positions that school board candidates take, that groups endorsing candidates take. Um, even the types of elected officials that are paying attention to school board elections has changed since the pandemic. But I think traditionally the argument is um, that public education is really a question of resources. Are we going to put more resources into our schools or less? And it's kind of to the extent that anyone thinks of it as political, that's it. Uh, or you hear oftentimes we should defer to the experts. And typically the experts are people employed uh, in education. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the, the issue with that is it's one thing to defer to expertise in terms of uh, uh, maybe the way someone approaches teaching reading or something in the yeah. classroom. And expertise insofar as what is the best way for a state or a school district to allocate their education dollars, which is not necessarily a question that that employees of the system are best positioned to answer either. Yeah, but I mean, the teachers unions have enormous budgets to invest in elections, right? Like they have a very heavy hand in many elections. I know in Missouri, they have one of the biggest budgets in terms of investing in elections and to donating to candidates. So they really do have a very real interest in getting people elected, you know, beyond school boards, but it, including school boards, uh, to state legislators who will do the kind of things that they want to have happen, which is often, you know, raising teacher salaries and, you know, work condition kind of things. And they do, they heavily invest in political campaigns. Right. And these are unique elections, too, just to start kind of um, yeah. set the table a little bit. I mean, one of the things right off the bat that makes school board elections uh, odd is that so many of them are uncontested. And just to yeah. give people some appreciation for that, um, Vlad Kogan, who's at Ohio State, political scientist there, has a new paper out where he shows that only about 40 percent of school board elections are contested. You compare that to Congress where 95% of seats are contested. So, so many of these positions are simply filled by whoever fills out the paperwork. Yep. Now, I don't want to overblow that and say that that doesn't mean the politics of school board elections don't matter. <laughs> I wouldn't say that given how much research I do on that area. It's certainly true that a lot of um, that smaller school districts tend to be ones that have uncompetitive elections. The larger school districts that serve more of our students 
uh, do tend to have competitive elections and the, the normal things like mobilizing voters and money matter there. But even in those elections, it's important to keep in mind that they are nonpartisan. Typically, Uh, so voters don't have the benefit of being able to suss out where the candidates stand with a party label. Um, There are also elections that are oftentimes held at odd times of the year. So turnout low. And then in my latest report, and I'm sure we'll we'll get into this more, um, something that I learned uh, that I didn't really expect is that you you accurately summarize the fact that teachers unions are real heavyweights in school board elections. And, and we have real precise estimates on what that means now. Uh, over the last 20 years, anytime anyone sat down to study this question, the teachers unions, we can say, win seven out of every 10 competitive school board elections when they make an endorsement. So that's an extremely high win rate, especially when you contrast it with, say, some of the data we've been seeing um, on how other groups that have been getting involved now, Moms for Liberty, other parental advocacy groups, they're maybe winning four out of 10 or five out of 10. The best I saw was in Pennsylvania, uh, maybe six out of 10. Uh, But the unions are really effective. And um, what we learned in this latest report is that, you know, conventional wisdom is that they're effective because they turn teachers out at the polls. Uh, that I, I'm not pushing. I'm not. I'm not here to say that that's not true. Their ground game, their mobilization, is part of the story of that success. But in a series of experiments, uh, my co-author Vlad Kogan and I recently uh, tried to see what would happen if you told um, uh, people that we surveyed, voters, if we told them, here are two candidates, look at their bios, and then we randomly told some of the survey respondents that uh, this candidate was endorsed by the union and that one wasn't. And to our surprise, uh, telling voters which candidate uh, got the union endorsement uh, significantly helps the union candidate. So what this means is it's not just a story uh, of unions out muscling everyone else. It's also that the union seal of approval um, carries some sort of cue that voters like. And we should unpack that a little bit. I will just say listeners might be saying, oh, OK, well, that makes sense. I'm sure it gets Democrats. Uh, a tingle goes down their leg. But the real surprise that we found here was that the um, there really were no negative effects. So you might think that when Republicans heard you know, um, Bill Jones is endorsed by the union that they would vote against him. But we find that it just has no effect. So the big positive effect you get from pro-union and pro-democratic voters uh, only goes to help the teacher endorse candidate. And there's really no um, there's really no downside to that. Um, And our answer to why that is, is um, that uh, much like physicians, uh, teachers are one of the occupations that have a lot of uh, trust among the public. So they're just very popular. Absolutely. And the, yeah, I mean, this is common sense, but what, what may be less common sense is that um, the unions are very effective at parlaying that trust of teachers into support for union endorsed candidates. Uh, and it obscures for voters the difference between how unions go about choosing which candidates they endorse and what the voters assume those endorsements reflect. Um, so we asked the voters, we said, OK, you know, we told you this candidate got the union endorsement. Um, what do you think that means? Which of the, And so they looked at two candidates and we said, which of these candidates are going to focus more on raising teacher pay? which are going to focus more on responding to parental rights and parental concerns, and which are going to really elevate uh, raising student achievement. Now, we weren't surprised that 
people said the candidate endorsed by the teachers union was going to push for higher teacher pay. You know, sure. They were right about that. But to our surprise, voters thought the union endorsed candidate was going to be better on all of those dimensions, more responsive wow. to parents, more likely to pursue student achievement. And so that seems to be what's driving um, their willingness to back the union candidate. Now, um, just quickly here, and then I'll pause. Uh, um, I, we took it a step further then. And I think this is the part of the report that's getting a lot of interest is we said, all right, that's what the voters think. The voters think that the unions are choosing candidates based on how well the students are doing academically and student pay and all these factors. But when we looked at the actual data over two decades where we could sort of do the old Ronald Reagan test, are you better off than you were four years ago? Are the kids learning more than they were when the school board member won office with the union endorsement? And what we find is that uh, the unions are no more or less likely to endorse incumbents for re-election, even if those incumbents delivered big uh, student achievement gains, even if they closed achievement gaps for advantaged and disadvantaged students. It just didn't factor in to the union selections. But what did factor in were those salary increases yeah. in the year before the election. And to be even more specific, and we should unpack this, it wasn't even just all salary increases. It was salary increases for senior teachers at the top of the salary schedule, not new teachers. Yeah, that's the people normally running the unions, right? They tend to favor the more senior teachers. And so I guess, like, just so I'm I'm clear on this, the conventional wisdom has been that school board elections are held in April or August, and uh, people don't get really invested or bother to go vote. But teachers, parents, people with a vested interest will learn about the election and they will vote. So those elections are predominantly um, or those people are predominantly elected by people from uh within the education system and not just everybody. So if you move it to November when you're voting for the president and Congress and, and everything else and you vote for school board, then uh, some people are very against that idea because now um, when you go to vote, you've got to learn about these candidates and you have to try to figure out which one you like or don't like. So it sounds like the easiest approach is just to see which one the union endorsed or who who the teachers in the parking lot are handing you the slip of paper about, right? Like if they endorse them, they're the experts and people really put a lot of, so what should we do? I mean, I know that you don't support off cycle elections. So what do we do to make uh, voters better informed when it comes to school board elections? Yeah. I mean, just uh, uh, briefly on the off on the election timing piece, I, I do think there are, I'm a proponent <laughs> of moving elections on cycle, but I do think there are countervailing forces there. Um, the off cycle elections predominantly, actually, it's not parents voting. It's a senior citizens who oh. this is kind of what led us to do the study because we're like senior citizens are not a natural ally of teachers unions. So why are teachers unions winning so much more in off cycle contests? So I do think there are countervailing forces, but I think what could ride roughshod over all of that, regardless of when you hold the election or the rules of the election is is to think about how can you get um, highly visible uh, popular elected officials or groups where voters know where they stand to take a stand in school board elections and give voters more information mm. where the candidates are. Because with the void of information, what you have is the teachers union out there um, sort of doing their uh, political advocacy. And as I'm sure you know, and, and maybe some of the listeners know, if you've been paying any attention to um, 
what the unions have been doing uh, in places where they've gone on strike yep. in the last few years. They've, they've revived this strategy that they call common good uh, unionism, which is basically, so far as I can tell, you know, they go in and they ask for everything in terms of the salary and the benefits that they would always ask for. But then they ask for a whole bunch of other stuff and they focus their PR efforts on the other stuff, which is typically like a, a laundry list of progressive policy wishes. It could be lowering uh, the price of housing in Los Angeles County. I mean, who's against that? We would yeah. all like lower housing. But they, because they get people focusing on that, they come off as kind of the good guys. They're fighting for the little guys. But at the same time, they're still asking for the 20% cost of living increase. And as we just saw in Portland, right. where you had a three-week strike wrap-up, at the end of the day, although they barked a lot about those common good, the union says, that's why we're on the picket line. Once they got their cola, yeah. uh, they're like, okay, you know, the other stuff, you know, we'll talk about it next time. So it, it gets obscured by this. So what do we do about this fact that 40% of them are uncontested? I, I, My experience was when my kids were in school, you know, people... I was around the schools a lot, you know, I volunteered a lot, I have a PhD, and people were like, you should run for school board. You know, you get that, like, you should run for school board. You pick somebody out, and then you're like, eh, I don't really want to be on the school board. It sounds like a lot of work. So we are having a hard time getting people to run for school board, it seems to me. And then during the pandemic, you know, a lot of these school boards were taking a lot of fire from parents, and school board meetings were getting out of control, where parents were coming in yelling at them. And, and from what I saw in the media, I don't know if it's true or not, uh, people are quitting school boards. So what do we do to get good candidates to run so that we have some uh, multiple options to choose from? Right. Well, I mean, I think the that, you know, the political scientist in me looks at the problem and says, uh, well, what makes other political offices attractive? And, uh, you know, uh, I uh, uh, and you would say, OK, the prestige and the pay. Well, we're not going to be able to pay school board members full salaries. So trying to professionalize these boards yeah. is is somewhat off the table. So then I turn to the question of, OK, um, one reason that so if people if it's going to take a virtuous public servant to be willing to do what's a hard job. How can we make it so that at least um, people who are intrinsically motivated for public service are willing to endure the, the costs of service. And I think there, the reforms that to me make more sense are trying to change what the school board has leverage over. Like, because I think a lot of good um, intention people that run for school board and maybe even win, get there and then they're so um, overcome by like a paralysis of, I can't get anything done, yeah. right? I'm literally just putting out fires. Maybe I can vote in a good, but I, I have no power, either I don't have enough power to get anything done um, or we're spending all our time on sort of petty adult politics and not focus on big things. So I think, you know, um, one of the things, particularly for our larger school districts is we ought to, and I just wrote a paper, um, so if folks who are interested, I'd encourage them to go to the, the Hoover website and check out this new series of papers that were just released. Um, they were retrospective on um, 40 years after Nation at Risk, and I wrote the, the paper on how to reimagine school governance. Well, nice. when I talked about school boards and reimagining governance, I said, you know, there's a lot to recommend itself around um, the portfolio-based approach or what's called portfolio management model. Uh, in school district governance reform, which basically is the idea that you get school boards and districts 
out of the business of micromanaging like what goes on in the school building. And they basically evolve into a governing entity that decides which schools are going to exist in the portfolio or the network of schools. So you can have magnet schools and charter schools and traditional district schools. And and you just, you're agnostic about the type of school. You simply, all the board members or the governing entity says, is the school will stay in business if they meet their performance objectives that they've agreed to meet. And if they don't, when it comes time for the contract renewal, we're going to give it to somebody else who has shown they can run a school. If you do that, I think then you'll get kind of higher quality people who are willing to serve on the board because their job becomes more mission focused and they can feel like they're making a difference rather than you know, uh, having these inane conversations about whether they're spreading the district money around to the right vendors. Or right, something right, like right, that. right. Because I think that's a lot of what takes up school board meetings is like hiring the landscaping company and like the bus routes and all of that kind of, like you said, really minutia stuff that um, can bring parents out. God forbid redistricting. That's always a good one. But but then uh, but then do we want the school board picking the curriculum? I mean, they do things that are way outside of probably their skill set, right? When we could have professionals in the administration doing those kinds of things too. Yeah, you know, the other thing that I say in the report that's somewhat controversial, I'm sure, is that it's okay to be skeptical about if school board, if board-based governance is really the right way to go. I mean, right now in real time, we're kind of watching an interesting natural experiment, which is that the city of Chicago, which from my vantage point, despite all its, its problems, made pretty good strides during the uh, mayoral years of Daly and Rahm Emanuel um, with um, a, a longtime um, mayoral appointed system. So the mayor would just choose the superintendent and people, you know, they bicker all about, well, that's not democratic and you're not letting the voters speak. Well, if you look at most districts, when you let the voters speak, one out of 10 of them show up for the election. So, you know, when you look at some of the places that uh, are run by mayor based systems, mm-hmm. you know, if the voters don't like what's going on, they can vote the mayor out of office. Right. In one single election, they can fundamentally revolutionize what's going on in the district. So it's not like they don't have any say, but you had a lot of stability in Chicago under um, uh, under the mayor-run system. And now they're going to have a 21-person uh, school board. I mean, what could go wrong? 21 little, we, we see it on the Chicago City Council Absolutely. all the time. You have all these little fiefdoms and each of those little school board members are going to be playing parochial politics based on the schools and the teachers and sort of the interest in their district. They're not going to be thinking of sort of making tough choices that are in the best interest of the district as a whole. Meanwhile, you see sort of the opposite down in Houston, Texas, where the state education agency has said, okay, enough is enough. We're going to take over the Houston school district and do a state-led takeover. Now, I'm not saying takeover is always the answer. Academic research shows that the picture is quite mixed on on what happens. But at least when you do a takeover, if leaders are able to close low-performing schools, and it's very politically hard, as you know, to close low-performing schools or under-enrolled schools, you get a little political slack to do that when you have a state takeover. And you can then steer those kids into higher-performing options in places like New Orleans that have done that, uh, uh, Camden, New Jersey, Uh, Newark, New Jersey, that were able to do that, um, they actually showed pretty big gains for kids. So when takeover as a governance strategy is paired with, you know, getting kids into higher performing schools and closing lower performing ones, that also is a reasonable governance strategy. And I think it's the way to go rather than trying to just get school board elections, which are so tricky, right? Yeah, we had state takeover in St. Louis 
and I think Kansas City, and then there was just like a constant drumbeat of we need to get the school board back, we need to have elected school boards again, it's not fair for the state to be doing it. And I wouldn't say St. Louis made any great strides during that time, but I do think D.C. has had this mayoral appointment, superintendent, New York has had the mayoral appointment, that's when they had their better superintendents was, and if I remember correctly, the mayor of D.C. did get voted out, out of office uh, Sharon Pratt Dixon because of the superintendent, right? <clears throat> and because of, of um, closing schools, which Michelle reacted on very hastily. I mean, I totally understand her reasons. But yeah, I mean, that was politically the most contentious thing to do. But the DC episode, to kind of return a bit to where we started with teachers unions, the DC episode is really interesting. I have this this uh, quote um, in, in the report um, from George Parker, mm-hmm. who was the president of the teachers union when Michelle Ree was the superintendent there. And she was pushing all these these reforms um, as the mayor's appointed CEO of the school system. And re- and um, George Parker in this sort of like uh, postmortem says, OK, I'm going to be really honest with you. Before uh, the mayor had the authority to appoint a superintendent that could make all these decisions, I would just go down to the school board members and say, I don't like any of these reform proposals, get rid of them. And yeah. because I had put them in office, they did it. But when there was a single occupant that answered to the mayor, I couldn't do that anymore. I mean, I stopped in my tracks when I saw that quote and I said, this is probably what needs to happen in other, at least in the really large dysfunctional districts. I'm not saying that mayoral takeovers are, are the answer for all 13,000 something districts, but in certain places, folks should give it a look. So, okay, in addition to that, what's your recommendation going forward for school boards to to do to give us an opportunity to elect better school boards? How do we how do we move forward? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is that, you know, and this is um, there's no policy solution to this. But um, I mean, there are some things we could do at the margins, but we really, I think, want if we're going to have school board elections, it's not healthy if an unrepresentative tiny slice of the electorate turns out to vote. I just I think both optically that's not great, but also I think that, you know, you're going to end up with both candidates who run and then can retain office that don't bring a very um, uh, not inclusive, but that they're not keeping an eye out for all stakeholders in the district. So that's going to require both, you know, um, so what could we do from a governmental perspective? I mean, some of the things that are small that we could do is, you know, we could really get states to improve transparency. So I'll give two examples. Collective bargaining. During the pandemic, you had parents waking up to emails from school districts that said, oh, we have this memorandum of understanding. And because of all these reasons, schools are going to be closed for three months. We just agreed to this. And the parents are like, what are you talking about? You yeah. agree to it. Oh, in a, in a one-on-one meeting with an interest group, your team... Parents didn't even have a clue what collective bargaining was. And then they quickly learned that a lot of the most consequential but kind of off the radar decisions that are made are made in secret between the teachers union and the administration or the district. So I think the first thing we need to do is if we're not going to give parents a formal seat at that table, we at least need to make it really transparent. You know, in Portland, um, in the Portland strike that just unfolded, there's been a lot of evidence to come out that the reason the public stood behind the union or elements of the st- public stood behind the union and the union allowed that to go on for so long is that folks were in the dark about really how much the district had to give away. The union convinced everyone that the district was just sitting on this money and that they could come up with $150 million more money. And then at the end, independent journalists and economists verified it wasn't true. Well, when you have more transparency, that comes out earlier in the process. And I think that would help. The second thing is, when we think about, you know, unfortunately, 
uh, and I'm writing a piece on this right now about great inflation, but we're in this moment yeah. now, what I call still the post NCLB hangover, where people are still really down on standards assessment and accountability. People don't like standardized testing. We test too much, all of that. And one of the unfortunate consequences of that um, is that we've really moved away from providing good information to parents and voters, let alone um, giving them that information going into the election. So it shouldn't be incumbent on parents to download bulky Excel spreadsheets from Department of Education websites. They should be getting all voters should be getting in the mail like here's an A through F rating of your schools. Kids are learning X percentage more than they were. And that should be coming out in October if your elections are in November Absolutely. or you know, put, put it right on the ballot. I mean, what we could put right on the, the school board election ballot, like, you know, what does proficiency look like now versus what it looked like four years ago? We could also have things like triggering automatic recall elections uh, of school boards if student achievement um, uh, declines and stays declined at a certain rate for too long. So there are what you might call um, these nudges that yeah. we could do to enhance the informational environment and give the average voter a fighting chance uh, to bring some accountability to school board elections. I mean, school boards are notorious for keeping superintendents as test scores go down. Test scores go down, they renew the contract. Uh, there's no accountability there uh, with, the, with the idea the next uh, the next term is when they're really going to get after it. <laughs> I mean, I see it all the time. It's like, how are you keeping that person? And I think there's a lot of um, camaraderie and the board brought in the superintendent and they like him and he likes the board and the teacher union leadership like it. Like, and so that cuts parents out of that whole that whole conversation you you mentioned great inflation portland is like the poster child now for they you get 50 percent if you don't turn something in you know they're getting rid of grades portland obviously their achievement is going to really start to tank here right we have great inflation we as everyone knows have chronic absenteeism which yeah. is still really really bad i'm working on some analysis on that but the early signs point to the obvious sorts of things that the places that stayed in remote learning for longer today, three years later, have more chronic absenteeism. And people, you know, I mean, not everyone, but some people say, well, that doesn't make any sense. If parents knew that there was learning loss from being out of school, why would they, why would kids not be getting sent to school? And I said, look, I, you know, I know I should go to the gym, but yeah. when I don't go for a while and I gain weight, it gets a lot harder to go back, right? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think school is habit formation. And you know, when parents are getting, um, I'd, I'd also um, recommend to, to listeners to check out a real interesting report, if not um, a tough one to read, is a piece that came out at the University of Southern California about a week or so ago, which was, um, it was nice because rather than these large surveys that we see all the time, this was a focus group of 40 parents. Mm. It was really drilled down to ask them their perceptions about how their kids were doing and how learning loss, um, how big or small learning loss is as a problem in the country. And what was really fascinating in that report is that much like we see when parents, uh, when when people in general rate their local schools highly, but say the nation's schools are doing poorly, yeah. the parents said learning loss is this huge problem in the country, but it's an other kid's problem. They were very um, unlikely to want to say their kid was, was struggling. But then what the authors of that report found was when they asked parents, they said, um, well, why do you think your kid's doing okay? The parents said, well, the grades that are coming home that I'm seeing are really good. Um, now, we know because of the great inflation that that's where you're getting the misalignment. Uh, great report from ACT showed that yep. the ACT was cratered, but the GPA stayed on par or went up. Um, but what was weird to me was that some of those parents in this focus group also seemed to indicate that they knew that standards at their kids' schools had been watered down. So they're saying, we know we're getting these sort of bad measures 
but we're relying on them more than the tests. And I blame a little bit. Um, I'm not saying standardized tests are everything, but I think we went way too far in the anti No Child Left Behind movement. Yep. There were things wrong with NCLB that needed fixing, but one of the things they did is this weird alliance of upper class uh, people who were like, "My kids are taking too many tests," yep. um, and the teachers' unions, where now everybody's just like, "Tests are bad," and it's like, no, you if you don't have any objective measure of learning, uh, and students are being given, you know, what at Yale the other day it was. 80% of kids, 80% of grades at Yale are an A, similar yes. at Harvard. So if all the grades are A's and you're not taking any objective tests, then of course we're all going to feel really good about ourselves. I think Checker Finn at Brookings is somebody who comes to mind as saying this recently, but it's something I feel very strongly about. Also, Mike Petrelli, we need accountability today more than ever. So the, like, the, the thinking has been, and I see it in Missouri, like, oh, the kids are struggling. It's been a tough three years. Let's give them a break. Let's not be hard on them if they don't show up to school or they don't turn in a paper. It's just been really, really hard. So let's just go easy on them. And I would say almost the opposite. This is when we really need to have accountability. This is when we really need to be measuring um you know, we just had a new set of test scores come out and they're like, but don't compare it to the years. But, you know, like it's they're they're bad, you know, our, especially our third grade reading scores. And I can't emphasize enough in the stuff I write, like how critical it is. These are the kindergartners in 2020. So, yeah, terrible, terrible kindergarten for a second and third grade. But if you can't read in third grade, um, you're not going to be successful lifelong, possibly, right? You're not going to be successful going forward. It's so important. And this is when we really need accountability in test scores. But we're getting more like, let's not look at the test scores too much. And let's not use them to make decisions, which I just think that is the absolute wrong approach. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a, uh, in any way trained as a, as a child psychologist, but I think that you don't have to be to also appreciate that these challenges that came out of the pandemic around the absenteeism and the learning loss are also coming at a time in which uh, there's at least circumstantial evidence that the uh, huge meteoric rise in the smartphone, the apps, the technology environment, um, and also the increase in depression associated yeah. with social media, that all of these things are also pro new problems that we have in addition to the sort of self-created problems right. arising out of the pandemic choices that we made. And it's going to be really tough. It's not, you know, the test scores matter, but it's also the sorts of things that I see at the higher education level, even among, frankly, some of our best students, which is I've seen a real change in the little things like sending emails back, uh, yeah. letting, you know, letting faculty know if I'm dropping this course or that, just kind of what I call like the soft skills that employers care a lot about. Like yeah. you show up, on, you turn yeah. your work in on time. Yeah. Um, and I'm sort of seeing the trickle down at this level. And I'm, you know, I teach at a school that accepts 15% of students yeah. at college. So if I'm seeing it here, I can only imagine what it's like in other arenas. Right. But I think it goes up the line too. I mean, we have 523 school districts and Last week, they fully accredited 517. So they basically just threw out the system because every everyone got fully accredited at a time when we have plenty of districts with single-digit rates of proficiency. But it's like, let's not kick them when they're down kind of a thing. And especially uh, Missouri has been pretty dead set against letter grades for schools because they think it's racist and classist because the low-income children of color will attend the F schools and we don't want to say that to the parents. I'm like, that's exactly what we need to say to those parents, which they probably already know, right? That their kids are not in a good school. But it's like, if we hide that information, we are just doing them a disservice. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think the pendulum will swing back at right. some point. 
um, on on the accountability thing. I think the 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 big thing is for those of us who advocate for accountability, um, we got to get it right this time, or or, or do yeah. better than we did yeah. with NCLB. And you know, we we've learned those lessons. We've learned that you can't only uh, focus on proficiency. You also have to look at growth. Yep. You've got to have multiple measures. You have to be thoughtful about this. And we do in in, in many contexts need to reimagine schooling um, in uh, to the extent that you know. Um, thinking about uh, kind of like what you sometimes hear unbundling of, of education that, you know, yeah. um, we can lean into some of the technological changes that create opportunities for maybe a kid is going to be able to take a course away from the brick and mortar yeah. uh, high school that they're at, or they can get an AP course or do an externship or something like that. I mean, like we need to be open to those sort of things. But unfortunately, the very ossified uh, political institutions that we use to govern schools, they tend to have a very knee jerk reaction to, well, we've never done that before, or yeah. I'm not sure that applies with our bureaucratic rules. So, you know, um, again, to me, there's a lot to be said for those portfolio based models. Yeah. Let, let a thousand flowers bloom. I mean, no, some kids are going to do great in a Montessori type school. Other kids are going to do better in a no excuses charter and other kids still are really going to thrive in, say, a Jesuit Catholic school. Yeah. And that's all that matters. It doesn't really matter. The, the institution shouldn't matter to us. It should right. matter. Is the kid thriving there? Right. Well, if people want to learn, learn more about public school governance, you're the go-to source now. You've got lots and lots of content for them to read, and I think it's all very fascinating, and I think that that is an issue that emerged. I know it's always been around, and you've been studying it a while, but during the pandemic that, you know, people kind of woke up and said, oh, well, school boards are actually kind of powerful. Maybe we should be paying closer attention to who's on them. So I, I yeah. appreciate your work. And um, how can people find more more of it? Manhattan Institute or Hoover? What's the best place? Or the Hoover Institution, uh, both places, uh, but College. I'm primarily hanging out, hanging out at the Hoover Institution these days. Um, and uh, we're, great work going on there with the Hoover Education Success Initiative, awesome. uh, where uh, Dr. Condoleezza Rice is really putting a lot of uh, resources at Hoover into, especially around the issue of expanding school choice. That's awesome. Um, and I think that's, I think that issue is going to be big going forward. And the other issue that folks are going to want to pay attention to is the issue of um, district budgets because that ESSER money is running out fast. And we're gonna, if you thought we saw a lot of teacher strikes in the last year. Uh, you know, Fiscal cliff. Buckle. Let's see. I've, I've had somebody on the podcast say uh, it'll be bloodletting. Uh, it's coming. It's coming in the next year or so. So I expect to hear it. There's going to be staffing uh, woes. So thanks so much, Michael. I appreciate I appreciate you taking the time to join us and educate us on this. It was fascinating. Thank you, Susan. <laughs>